Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. On Sunday night, we um, pick up the pace a little bit, not too much. And we try to work verse by verse through it rather than in a, an in-depth message. So this way, uh, on Sunday night, you get beginning with an introduction of every book, an outline on how to break it down, how it fits together. And then we, we take a broader look, going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, running like a big river. And then we take that in-depth message on Sunday morning and we cut deep. So this way you're getting wide and depth. So by the time we get down with the book of Luke, you've had um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter exposition with an entire introduction. You've had in-depth studies. You have taken meat, vegetables, potatoes, soup, salad, even pudding. And you've spent time with this book. I'm not so interested in how fast I can get through the Bible. I'm more concerned that you live out the little Bible that you have in you. Um, every pastor is different. Some can go this pace, some cannot. The Lord understands that. There's no competition. There is no envy. There's no jealousy. We're all different. You know, certainly you don't get mad at your foot because it can't grab the fork. It's not a hand. And so God gives different people and calls them to different ministries. And if we compare ourselves among ourselves, then we're not wise at all. And so that God is in the ministry will be evident by him bringing people, by providing the teaching, by giving the wisdom to the individuals, by raising up leaders, by providing the things that are needed, by opening doors. And the rest is really irrelevant. And so we, um, we uh, thank you for coming and... We uh, bless you for it. Let's um, open to Luke chapter 10, please. Luke chapter 10. We're probably only going to cover verse 1 through 24 tonight. If I get through it all, it'll be a miracle, but um, we'll try 24. Jesus um, has just taught... And those who were not worthy to be disciples at the end of chapter 9. Those who were very impulsive. Um, those who said, first let me bury my father. Wrong priorities. Another one who said, uh, first let me bid goodbye to those in my house who were always looking back and, you know, wishing they hadn't left. Um, and, and this describes a lot of people in ministry. When um, I was a young Christian, when I first came to the Lord, I was 23 years old, 1973, July. And um, I, I just devoured Pastor Chuck's tapes. He used to teach 10 chapters a night on Sunday night. Every, he would teach about an hour and a half. And uh, he would go 10 chapters. And of course, it wasn't verse. He'd do an overview and get to pick up the key things. But that was, that was stake for all of us who were coming out of the world. We didn't know a thing. And, and I just devoured those things one after the other. And, um, and Chuck would, would often say that um, when he started to go to... Seminary when he knew God had uh, called him, and he was affiliated with the Four Square Church. He went to L.A. over here at Joe's Temple, and um, he said there were many of his friends that were there. But when I was listening to him starting on the seventy-three, he would share how he was probably one of the least that was still in the ministry. The majority of them had bombed out and gone into other things, either been disqualified or just gave up. The ministries for the long run, um, you don't try ministries just to see if it's an easy way to make a living. You don't choose me to say, well, you know, I failed at everything. I might as well try ministry. As if that's the easiest thing to do. Anybody who calls themselves to ministry and dares to start a ministry and tries to organize it and, and formulate it and raise funds, God help the people that sit under him. 
You must know that you're called, you must know that you're sent, and you must know that the anointing of God's upon you. If not, then all your work is in vain. And you will add more hurt to the people of God and to yourself than you can even imagine. Now Jesus turns to the sending out of the 70 here in chapter 10. Verse 1 through 12 gives us this section. The parallel passage is found in Matthew 10. And here in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by twos before his face into every city, place where he himself was about to go. So the 70 were commissioned to prepare the coming of Jesus as he's moving now under the shadow of the cross towards Jerusalem, as we've made mention many times. After these things means the preceding things of chapter 10. And remember that Luke kind of at this point leaves the chronology of Matthew and Mark and he gives us material that we don't find in those synoptics. And he's not always writing in chronological order, but sometimes in thematic or subject groupings, as we've seen. And we'll see again as we keep going. Um, the number 70 is found throughout the scripture is key. Seventy nations are found in the table of nations in Genesis 10. Seventy elders were appointed by Moses and God took up the spirit of Moses and put it on them in Numbers 11, 16 down to 25. There were 70 years of captivity recorded by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. There's the 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel 9, 24 to 27 that gives us the countdown to the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ to the very day, the first coming. The second coming, of course, the abomination of desolation has to take place for the countdown to begin. That's when the Antichrist entered the temple that he will build, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and he enters in and he declares himself to be God and he sets an image of himself and he gives the power to speak. And from that point on, that's the abomination of desolation that you can count on. 1,260 days, look up to these, and Jesus will be coming back. Three and a half years based on a 360-year calendar of the Bible, not the Gregorian 365. Um, Zechariah 9.9 gives us the first and the second fulfillment there. Now, there's also 70 men of the Sanhedrin, as you know, the... Uh, Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, um, that um, Paul was uh, judged under. And um, so 70 is key in Scripture. Jesus, the Lord, appointed the 70, notice, as he did the 12 back in chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. This, again, is cannot be underemphasized or overemphasized, or it could be underemphasized, but not overemphasized, is that Jesus is the one that has to send men out and anoint them and call them. Because a person may have a college degree or a seminary degree, and he has a certificate that says, Reverend so-and-so, doesn't make him called, anointed, and sent by God. Men send many people out that God never called. The education does not qualify you as a minister. And by the way, minister means a waiter on table, a servant. That's what your pastor is, a glorified waiter boy. Nothing reverent about me. The word reverence one time in the Old Testament is regarding God, not any man. And so Jesus is the one that anoints, calls, and sends, as I said earlier. This is key. And, and what happens sometimes after movements begin and God uses the movements and they're genuine movements of God and God does an incredible work, even as God did through Pastor Chuck, the Jesus movement. But every movement has a lifespan. As its original, pure, 
leading of God. How long that is depends on each movement. But men become entrenched and there becomes a separation with between those who are really more famous or bigger and those who are behind when they all start out the same. Politics comes in, power grabs, and absolute corruption. There is no exception, be it a movement or a denomination. It happens all the time. We Calvary Chapel are no exception. If we think we are, we're smoking crack. Because we are men with feet of clay like anybody else. The good thing is that we're not a denomination. And so even if the movement would go bad, each of us are individually independent and we never, we never depend on one or another for finances, for anything. If God's in it, this church began from a Bible study of three people. It was never intended to be a church. It was simply a Bible study. God developed it into a church. And that's the way you want it. I didn't go to seminary to start a church. I was going to Cal State Los Angeles when I got saved in my my senior year towards the, the beginning, middle, and um, then the Lord saved me. In fact, when I was ready to graduate, I didn't even go to my graduation. I was so just, I was saved. God had taken me. I, I came to know the Lord by losing my right eye. My brother and I used to teach Kung Fu, and we were doing a demonstration. The stick broke and punctured my eye and uh, deflated in my hand, and that's how I came to know the Lord. Um, I used to have two eyes, was blind. I have one, now I can see. And, um, and God, God just grabbed our hearts and we began to minister in our old high school at Ballin Park and we taught in our Kung Fu studios and then we just closed the studios up, made it into the first uh, church over called Hidden Manor over across from Northwood's End um, on the Sousa Avenue in uh, San Bernardino Road, just a little bit there. And, and God just began to do an incredible work. And, and we never envisioned um, uh, of having big buildings or being churches. We were, we were just... Happy we were saved, we would fill our vans up, the 70s were full of vans, and we'd take young people down to the concerts out of the tent, and then when they got into the, the building, and, um, and we just get people saved on weekends, we have Bible studies, we just share with people, we, we, we didn't care, we just knew Jesus was coming. Now, looking back, we see what God did through a bunch of nobodies. And yet we see also the many that have fallen. It's a marathon. Both the call and being a Christian. The obstacles are many. The testings, the temptations. I wish I could tell you as you get older it gets easier, but I'd be lying. And sometimes Christians have this ideal that, that you know, it's going to get easier, it's going to get better. No, you're just going to grow stronger. You can become more like Jesus and less like you. Unless you don't want to. Then, then it really gets bad. <laughs> he appointed the 70, just like the twelve. He sent them out two by two, just like the twelve. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 tells us that two is better than one. If two are cold, they can lie together and get some heat. If two travel together, one's assaulted, the other one can help them, so on and so forth. So whenever we travel, whenever we go somewhere, we always go by twos. It's just wisdom. Now, there are ministers that travel alone a lot. I think they're full fools. I think they are brainless. Number one, if you're a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be set up. Number two, if you think you can't fall, then you deserve to fall. We travel in twos always for accountability and protection. Always. Simple wisdom. There were forerunners to announce his coming in every city and place where 
Jesus was about to go. In verse 2, he says, Then he said to them, The uh, harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he send down laborers into his harvest. The 70 were given the perspective regarding their mission. It's important that you... Jesus always laid out truth about what was coming. Sometimes ministry or Christianity is presented to the people that are non-believers as something. Hey, you just, you, man, you'll feel great. You'll have peace. You'll never have any trouble. No, 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 no. Jesus said, listen, you want to follow me? Foxes don't they have holes. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. They hated me. They're going to hate you. You sure you want to follow me? Now, if you listen to some of the evangelism that goes today, it, it, it doesn't go along with Jesus. They don't, they don't lay out the reality. Is this kind of ideal Disneyland Christianity? And then they come and make an altar call, and then the real stuff hits them, and whoa! The harvest is great, Jesus told them. It's ripe, but the labors are few. Now, that, that's not a problem for Jesus, He just tells them to understand. That the harvest is always ready. Every generation. There are others who have sown the word of God in previous generations. Before we're even born again. And sometimes as we're ministering the gospel. We're, we're reaping the harvest of somebody else has sown 10, 20 years before. Or even a generation before. But it's his harvest. Not mine. Uh, some plant, some water. But God gives the increase, Paul tells the Corinthians. So we should in glory. We don't have notches in our belt. When a ministry constantly tells you how many people they have reached and saved, something is wrong. Something's absolutely wrong with that ministry. What do you care how many people you've reached? You're trying to impress people. You're trying to convince people to support you by numbers. Pastor Chuck hated that. He never mentioned numbers. He never mentioned money. Now such is not the case for many Calvary chapels today. They're going that way. And those who were affiliated aren't called Calvary also. Yet, let me see how these men live. Where they live. very important the shepherds to live among the people with the people from among the people not separate from the people not exalted from the people not high above the people it's very important when you do that you separate yourself from the people automatically and they worship you that's no good. That's absolutely sin. The harvest is great. Labors are few. That's the reality. I've been walking with the Lord 41 years, and it's always been like that. But you know what? It's God's harvest. It's God's church. He's the one that's doing the work. So all I have to do is what it says next. They were to pray to the Lord of harvest to send out labors to the harvest. And so we pray, and then we go, and we know God will be sufficient for it. With the many or the few. God's not up there in heaven biting his nails on the throne, trust me. Not over his church, or over America, or the world. <laughs> He's not saying, oh man, what if this thing goes broke before I have time to go back? And what if, I, what if they do? He's not worried. He's in control. We're right on schedule. I just hate the schedule. But we're right on schedule. In fact, Matthew 9, 37, 38 tells us that do not say there's four months till the harvest. Uh, John four thirty five speaks about it too. 
There's always that sense of procrastination of, of uh, well, we'll do it tomorrow. Well, it's not yet. It's ready. If you would just go out in the street and start sharing Christ, you would be amazed how many people come to Christ if you just talk to them. We do it all the time on Friday, Saturday nights uptown in different places. If there's ever been a need for street evangelism and one-on-one more than ever before, it's now in America. But we got a problem. Now we've got legislation and legality is coming against us in many different ways. Right now by bully laws, but pretty soon by legislation. But the church has always suffered. Not the church in America, but the church throughout the world. And so we have to make a decision whether we're going to obey God or man. You know what the disciples said in the book of Acts, right? They threw him in jail. Came out, started preaching again in the temple. They called him, hey, didn't we tell you, hey, should we obey God or man? Of course we're going to obey God. If things continue as they are, it won't be long before pastors will go to jail in America. Won't be long. And so we'll see what God has. He's in control. Verse 3 down to 7, you get their orders for um, evangelizing the homes they're going to go into. Verse 3 says, uh, go your way. Behold, I send you as lambs among wolves. Well, the very first thing, they were to know that he sent them in dangerous territory. He was sending them in harm's way, as they say in the military. I send you out as lambs among wolves. He is sending them. Then that means he's going to be with them. Lo, I am with you to the ends of the earth. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that day when they accuse you, they bring before magistrates, don't worry about what you're going to say. For in that day, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And this has been an ultimate witness throughout the church age for those who have suffered for Christ under Mao's uh, persecution in China, under Cuban uh, persecution, in Russia when it was the USSR, in many places. Today in Iran, this is the case. Many Iranians are coming to the Lord underground. We have gone over and we have trained some people. They come across and they train. They go back to preach the gospel and they get persecuted, killed, or imprisoned. They have just printed out the Farsi Bible about a couple of years ago, three years ago. It's being taken back to Iran. The conversions in Iran of Muslims is incredible. You don't hear anything about it. We've told you about it before. The leaders of that movement for protection, I will not mention. But they tell us of things that it's hard to believe sometimes that Jesus literally has appeared to some men in prisons. I've talked to men who were in prison and I spoke to them. And when you speak to them, it's amazing. You're talking to them and they say, oh yeah, they did this. It was a no, no, no dramatic American testimonial. They're just talking like anything. Oh, yeah, they didn't consider it. It was something that was done bad to them or that they were poor. Me, they, they just, it was part of the course. What an incredible difference. It humbles you. Absolutely humbles you. Matthew 10, 16 says, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So, knowing that there's danger out there, we're to use common sense, wisdom. Go prayed up. Go prepared. Be vigilant. Don't be foolish. Some Christians are just like dumb sheep. We're to be the wisest in the world, ladies and gentlemen. Having been in the world, 
And being now in Christ and knowing the word of God. And seeing our marching orders. He lays it out before us. Notice in verse 4. Carry neither money, bag, knapsack, nor sandals. And greet no one along the road. So they were to travel light as possible because time was urgent. Jesus is on his way down. Down from the north, down to Jerusalem. um, Six months at this point. And uh, no money bag. Uh, so they were not to carry you know, money with them because they, God was going to provide for them through the people they went, as we'll see. No knapsack, carrying any provisions that you would make for a long journey. Um, and no sandals means an extra pair. And if you compare some of this to the 12, they're similar in some. Uh, nor greet anyone along the way with the idea of getting into a conversation where you're going to spend half of the day or the day there. You need to move on to the commission I'm giving you. That's the intention here. Um, And in verse 5, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. So they were to declare a blessing on the house that received them and the gospel. And first to say peace to this house. Because their heart was open to the gospel. Now, many of these are Jews that they're dealing with. First he came to the Jews, his own sheep, and then it would be to the Gentiles. Other sheep I have of this that are not of this fold, he told us in John. And so right now the ministry of Jesus is to the Jew primarily. He has dealt with a few Gentiles, but it's to the Jew. The Gentile population came in after in the day of Pentecost. The Jews, the Spirit was poured out, and we see that movement, but then... Paul is used to reach the Gentiles, but even before him, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. And we see that movement as God begins to bring in those who are of the Gentile world. And the early church were mostly all Christians for the Jewish um, nationality. But then after that, it became more Gentile from that point forward. Now, in verse Six, he says, and if the son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. So if a disciple was welcomed in the house, the son of peace, meaning the messenger, the ambassador of Christ, their peace would be upon the house. But if they rejected, that peace would be removed. The Bible speaks about, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that the The child is sanctified by the saved parent. There is a great benefit from those who are saved to those who are not saved. This church being here is a great blessing to this community. More so to the businesses that are close to us. Because God looks over the church and he protects. And God brings people and there's a work of going God here. It's a light, it's a witness. And it keeps a lot of darkness out. Trust me. You remove churches, this block will become real dark. I guarantee you. God works like that. When there's a believer who's... Uh, maybe a husband who's a believer, a wife who's a non-believer, that shall receive the benefit of the believing parent, their prayers, their example. Until that child comes of age to make that decision. But there's a benefit. A non-believing spouse benefits from the saved spouse. Their prayers, their love, their submission, their obedience to God, their commitment. And yet our society is so anti-Christian today. You can be anything. You can believe in a rock. You can believe that you're God and they'll applaud you. The most violent religion, Islam. Nothing is said against it in America today. The most blessed and beneficial 
and loving Christianity is objected to completely on every level of society today. They call evil good and good evil according to Isaiah 5.29. I believe we're coming to the close of the age. <laughs> As I look to Israel and I remember Zechariah where it says that in the last days I will make Jerusalem a troublesome stone to the whole world, to all nations. And I see even our nation turning us back on Israel. God help us. Genesis 12, 3 says, Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Do a history study of the nations who have turned their back or been hostile to Israel and what has happened to them. You might look at Spain. You might look at Germany. You might look at England. You might look at the United States. And there are many others. Verse 7 says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. So the disciples that were sent were to be content with the provisions that would be offered in that home. And they weren't to say, well, let's try the next house. Maybe they'll have bagels or something. You know what I mean? Um, they were to be content. And the reason given is for the laborers worthy of his wages. Paul quotes these words of Jesus. And he quotes the Old Testament, not the muzzle, the ox that treads the corn, Deuteronomy 25.4. And he mentions it in 1 Timothy 5.18 to cover both Old and New Testament as Scripture, authoritative. He mentions that in 1 Corinthians 5.9, but he never took the liberty of taking any money. He said, the Lord won't allow me, but I'm not against those who are laboring of the ministry. They live of the ministry. And he's quoting Jesus. Um, again, not to abuse people, not to fleece the people. But if you're called, you're sent, then time will declare it. You shouldn't have to mention, you shouldn't have to pry, you shouldn't have to work people for the finances. You teach the word of God, you give an opportunity for an offering to be taken, nonchalant on Sunday, once a week as the Bible teaches, and then whatever God provides, that is your budget. You don't make no special appeals, you don't crank down the screws on people. You don't say, you cheap guys, I can't believe you. But then, you know, we're more refined as ministers. We say, well, you know, how much money do you spend on lattes a month? Stop and think about that. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Pastors start laying trips like that. Get up and walk out. Get up right there and walk out. Are you called? Then teach the word of God. Do the work of God. He'll take care of the rest. And if God decides for you to work, then you work. Everybody on staff here had secular jobs. Tony used to paint. Mario did drywall. I've done some men, taught gymnastics. I have my kung fu studio. I've done different things. Fernando used to uh, have a machine shop, does stitching, different things like that. Um, you have Henry. Henry used to work at the Greek theater for years. Diego was a private eye. So, we're jack of all trades. Some hams of the church, some drywalling, some, some man, whatever. We, 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 there's no problem. No big deal. Now, in verse 8 down to 12, you have the orders regarding the cities for the evangelism. He's dealt with the homes, now he deals specifically with the cities. 
In verse 8, he says, Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are said before you. So, interesting, he's sending Jewish disciples out. And he says, you cannot be kosher when I send you. Huh? You don't knock on the door and say, yeah, you have some Hebrew nationals? You don't say that. If they put some pork on you, gobble it up. How interesting, huh? Verse 9, he says, And heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. They would be used by God to do miraculous works of touching people. And once they were delivered by demons or sicknesses or anything as we've seen, they were declared that the kingdom of God was near to them. It was present. The kingdom of God is present and yet the covenant's fulfillment completely. Right now it's in part. Jesus has not returned. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says, The very dust, I'm sorry, verse 10. But whoever, uh, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. So they were to warn the city that rejecting them and the gospel was not a very good decision. They were to go out to the streets and as good Jewish ritual, they shake the dust off their feet as to not defile themselves by those who are rejecting the gospel, indicating that now they were liable for judgment because they had the accountability of the greater light that has come to them, the gospel and Jesus. Wow. You stop and think of those who have heard the gospel so many times and they're still in their sin, mocking the gospel, mocking Jesus, mocking Christians. The more you, you, you reject the gospel, the greater the light, then the greater the judgment is going to be the indication through these cities. Verse 12 says, But I say to you that it would be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. That, that's quite a statement. The future judgment of that city would be more severe than Sodom. Why? Due to the greater and higher privilege. Sodom never had the gospel, nor Jesus go there. Simple. The accountability of light they have received is the measure. Verse 13, down to 16, we have the denouncement of the city's being indifferent to the gospel. 13 and 14, the city of Chorazin and Bethsaida are uh, declared. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. The word woe indicates judgment. Once for each city. Chorazin and Bethsaida. Chorazin means furnace of smoke. It's a town in the Galilee region on the western shore, inland a bit. Bethsaida, the house of fish, a fishing um, city, west shore, west, north and west shore of the Sea of Galilee as we've seen. Uh, it was the house of Andrew, Peter, and Philip. Um, John 144, I believe, gives you a record of that. And the reason was their high privilege of witnessing miracles of Jesus, and they didn't repent. That's the whole issue here. Being rebuked by the pagan city 
of Tyre and Sidon, up in Lebanon, Syria. They would have repented if they would have had the gospel and Jesus come to them. In sackcloth and ashes, evidence of true repentance, if they would have had that privilege. Now, this is Jesus speaking. This is no hyperbole. This is not hypothetical. This is fact. Verse 14. He says the tire and side would be more tolerable for them, the judgment. The judgment will be more tolerable for them than for grace and Bethsaida. He came to his own, his own received them not. Jesus said, there's coming one in his own name, him you will receive, the Antichrist. Israel still has the worst future ahead of her when she makes a seven-year covenant with the Antichrist and he betrays her in the middle of that week. Such is time that it would be better to die than to live in those days, Jesus says, such as have never been before. And we've had some pretty horrible times in human history. None compared to that. Verse 15 to 16, you have the city of Capernaum now. He says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Why? Because Capernaum, on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, was the headquarters of Jesus, as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke. There he called Matthew at the seat of customs. We, we did a message on that. And they, they rejected. They didn't believe in him. Capernaum means village of Nam or comfort. A rejection of the disciples' commission. Look at verse 16. He who hears you, hears me, and he who rejects you, rejects me, and he who rejects me, rejects him that sent me. So, any rejection of a Christian in the gospel is a rejection of Jesus, and the rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the Father who sent him. The Father sent him, he sent us, and God holds people accountable for that. To those that much is given, much more is required. And 17 down to 20. We have the return of the 70. Verse 17 gives us the wrong perspective of the authority and power vested to them. Then the 70... Return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were overjoyed that the demons were subject to them. The word subject means they're hupatasso. It's a military term to line up under one in authority over you and of greater authority. In 18, the response of Jesus to the joy of the disciples is interesting. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, there are different interpretations of this passage. It's not as clear cut as it appears. Some say that Jesus, by saying that he saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven, refers to his past rebellion and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. That's one interpretation. The other one, it refers to Jesus' victory on the cross and descending to Hades, spoiling principalities and power, making a public open display of them, as mentioned in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Still another says it refers to Satan's fall in the future when Satan is cast out of heaven to the earth in Revelation 12, 9 in the middle of the tribulation. 
And some, on the other hand, say it refers to the defeat of Satan by Jesus in the wilderness that we saw in chapter 4. Now having greater authority over him and his angels. Which one is right? <laughs> now, the first three are true observations of the past, of the cross, and the descending, and of the future. But the word fall here is a participle eras active, literally falling, which is a timeless account. In other words, it's not speaking about some past or now or future, but timeless. The flash of lightning was instantaneous in the wilderness when he defeated him from his authority. The first Adam failed and put us into bondage to Satan. The last Adam did not fail and defeated him in the wilderness. I think this is the proper one. The others are true in the past, at the cross of dissension, in the future. But the reason I choose this one is because we have to look at the context. As he says this, notice what he says in the next verse. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He's, in, he's imparting vested authority to them to do the work of the kingdom through the gospel now forward. This will be imparted to every generation in the Great Commission. And this verse sounds a lot like the Great Commission in Mark 16, 70-20, which is rejected by many so-called scholars, which I reject their rejection. <laughs> That section is found in many manuscripts, and those that don't have it leave the space for it to indicate that it was original. As you know, Paul the Apostle, in Acts 28, I believe, verse 2 through 5, he was uh, on that island, and he went to get some firewood in a a serpent fastened to his arm. And the native says, Truly this man's a murderer that even the ocean he can't escape the judgment of God. Now the serpent gets him. And they were waiting him to foam up in the mouth and just croak. And Paul just shook that thing off like a mosquito. And they freaked out. I believe this is what the promise is to missionaries that go out. And God protects them. You, some of you ladies were here with um, Melissa, who's the little girl missionary in Africa. And, um, and, and she probably shared with you that a lot of the natives get mad at Christians because they try to poison Christians and they say they don't die. When she told me that, I you, What? If God sends a missionary, now that doesn't mean that missionaries don't get killed. Why does God protect some and not others? I have no idea. You can ask him when you get up there. The main thing is not what's going to happen to me. The main thing is that I go only where God tells me to go. That I die here or abroad or somewhere else doesn't really matter. I'm going to die. But you want to make sure that you're in the will of God. That's the most important thing. And so in view of verse 19, I believe that the proper interpretation is the destruction over the authority of Satan over those who will reach people with the gospel. All authority has been vested in me, Jesus says, in heaven and earth, in that great commission. And then in verse 20, 
we have the proper reason to rejoice, stated by Jesus. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Wow. Now, if you look at the whole passage, and I said often that Luke sometimes deals with themes and topics. The falling of Satan, first of all, its origin from the beginning is pride. They come back, oh man, these guys are subject to us, the demons. Pride? He says, don't rejoice over that. Here's what you should rejoice about, that your name's written in heaven. That should humble you. Not lift you up. Wow. Hmm. The book of life is mentioned, and we've covered that before. Exodus 32.3, Daniel 12.1, Hebrews 12.23, Revelation 3.5 to mention a few. And um, Jesus says that we're to be careful that our name not be removed from the book of life. Half of them speak about removing and half of them speak about writing in. That implies that it can be written and then it can be removed. Those people that tell you that you don't have to worry about that, they'll explain it away figuratively. Really? So what Jesus says is not literal. He's only kidding. The cultural background, especially in the book of Revelation, to one of the churches, was that if you were a person of honor, they would put your name on pillars. And if you ever did something to mar your character, they would remove your name. A literal illustration. So those people who, to explain it away... And say it's simply what they call a litotis. It's a negative to affirm the positive. And I agree that it's that in some context. But all of them put together, both possibilities are possible. If not possible, why would it? Is God threatening us with it? No, he's warning us. A father doesn't threaten a son or a daughter. He warns them. He warns them because there is a potential for their actions. Not because there's no potential. Real simple. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a PhD. Just use your brain. Common sense. Simple. Sir James Simpson, who discovered chloroform, was asked what his greatest discovery was. He said this, Jesus, my Savior. <laughs> so many of our great men of science and university professors and brilliant men were Christian. At one time in our nation. The number has waned today. Our university has been taken over by atheists and progressives, liberals, Marxists, communists, socialists. And they pump out their little army every year. So the demographics of America, the population balance is shifting very, very rapidly. We have been on a slope. Now we're in free fall. Many immigrants are being dispersed to the nation to change the demographics so that's more democratic in two years. Make no mistake. All that's happened in the United States is not by accident. It's part of God's judgment. We've sown to the wind we have reaped the whirlwind. So I'm looking for Jesus. 
He says he'll come back for his bride. That's my hope. Verse 21 to 24, Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He says, in that day, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from and have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. The gratitude of Jesus to the Father for revealing the Son to those who have an open heart and humble spirit to acknowledge they are sinners in need of repentance. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. The Spirit was given to him without measure, John tells us. The word rejoice means thrill, exalted. He is one with the Father. He never, we're going to do a message on the prayers of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke because the Gospel of Luke portrays the many numbers, records them, the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus never prayed with the disciples together. You and I pray together, but Jesus never prayed with them together. He always prayed alone to the Father. He never said, our Father. He says, my Father. Jesus thanked the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for having hidden them from the wise and prudent, the natural and the proud. Those who rejected the gospel through a hard heart, remember the sower. Take heed how you hear. The hard heart, the seed never penetrated. One out of four. But he revealed them to babes, those acknowledging their poverty of spirit, Unable to merit salvation, in need of repentance, poor in spirit, the beatitude, Matthew 5, 3. Bankrupt. I have nothing to merit salvation. I'm saved by grace through faith, I'm not of myself as a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. John 1, 18 says that no one has revealed the Father except the Son. So the Son reveals the Father. And the Father and the Son are both in the business of saving people. <laughs> this does not mean that God draws some and God does not draw others. You would, never, you would never come up with the doctrine of Calvinism by reading the Bible alone. Calvinism says that God unconditionally elected a few to be saved sovereignly from the foundation of the world. Unconditionally. They have no choice. They're going to be saved whether they like it or not. Whether they hear their gospel, whether they believe, it doesn't matter. They're going to be in heaven. And then the majority of the population of the world, he unconditionally damned. While both groups deserve hell. You believe that? That's not what my Bible teaches. That would make God unjust, unfair, unloving. You would never come up with that idea unless you were taught by pastors who are Calvinists or you pick up Calvinist material. There's no way you would come up with that. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The world is the world. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you substitute the word world for elect. The chosen frozen. That's a violation to that scripture. You can't do that. That's the son of Jesus. Don't you fear God? That God died for all and you say it's only you and the chosen frozen? Amazing. The Holy Spirit knocks on the door of our heart when we're lost. The gospel reveals our sin and our lostness and then he allows us to make a choice. If we choose to agree with God, we repent. He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and give us eternal life. And gives a divine nature. If we harden our heart, we reject. He respects our choice. And it gets harder to believe the more you reject. So that when people die, they have no excuse. When they come before the judgment of God and white throne judgment, and God says to every individual, Why did you not accept me? 
They have to say, because I chose not to believe. So God's judgment will be just. But if you believe God predestined the majority to be damned without ever giving them a chance, and, they, and God brings that person up and says, why did you not accept me? That person would have to say, because you predestined me not to choose you. And God would be unjust. And God would be at fault for the lostness of that person. Is that what your Bible teaches you? But that's what Calvin taught. That's what Calvinists believe. But they'll never tell you straight up. We just finished the series. Get it. Can't afford it? Go on YouTube. We put it on YouTube. We're going to get hammered. (laughs) We put it all on YouTube. (laughs) Amazing. Men just make such big problems for the gospel. They mess it up. All of us, if we're not careful. Babes, humble, open. And it seems good to the Father. What? To respect the heart of those who reject Him. And to respect the heart that are open to Him. Simple. You get to choose where you spend eternity, not God. Verse 22 says, All things have been delivered to me of my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, Calvinists love verses like this. See the elect, the call. No, 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 you're reading into it. He simply is saying that God has delivered everything to the Lord. The gospel goes forth. People make decisions, and it is only the Son who reveals the Father. Simple. Jesus says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. How can you say he's revealed the Father to us? Have I been so long a time with you? Interesting. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes um, which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Verse 23 and 24, you have the greater privilege of the disciples. They are blessed to what they have seen and heard. Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Messiah that was over to Adam in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. To Isaiah 7.14, behold, a virgin shall bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. To the Messiah that would hang on the cross in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Over and over again, all the scriptures, the prophets, the kings, they looked forward, they were waiting, expecting. They died before the promise. These individuals saw him, touched him, walked with him. Greater blessedness, greater accountability. That should humble them. That should humble you and I of the high call and responsibility we have towards the lost. If you are rejoicing in your Christianity without any heart for the lost, something is wrong. Something is absolutely wrong. Every door that God opens, every opportunity, you should present Christ to somebody. When they reject it, if they reject it, don't get thin-skinned. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. Suck it up. Pray for that person. Because it's judgment to them. It gets harder next time. God who at different times and in diverse manners spoken times past to the fathers has in these last days spoken unto us by his dear son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 through 3. He speaks to nobody but his son. The son reveals the father. The Messiah has come in his first coming. We're waiting for him to come for his church in the rapture. And then we're going to come back with him in the second coming to set up the kingdom. Are you going to be there? Are you confident your name is written in the book of life? Are you rejoicing over that? Then abide in Christ. Put on the armor. Fight the good fight. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let him increase and you decrease. And you will do just well. 
Lord, thank you for your loving goodness. Thank you for tonight. We just worship you, Lord, and we thank you for just your word and the privilege we have to be able to read and understand and allow your spirit to deal with us individually, Lord, and collectively as a church. Lord, I pray for each person here tonight. Lord, you alone know what's going on and their needs, and I pray that you would meet those needs. And Lord, that uh, we would all yield to you more and more. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can be saved. Recognizing that you can't earn it, that you deserve hell, but you can have it freely by trusting the atoning work of Jesus Christ, that he died in your place and paid the price for your sin, and that God will make you whiter than snow. It's called repentance. Right where you sit, if you're a sinner and you see yourself exactly as that lost in need of a Savior, this is your prayer repentance to Him if you want to be born again. You can repeat it right where you sit. Jesus is going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to give you a Bible absolutely free. Brother, to my right, your left, Tony Woman.